turn to Philippians, if you would, please. We've been studying Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and look at what God says to the brethren there. In the series, we're looking at God's messages to his churches. And in these uh, messages, the writings of the Apostle Paul in, in this series, of course, we talk about his writings and what Paul has to say, what Paul instructed. But uh, I want us to remember that these are God's messages. This is what God is saying to the churches, and certainly the, the Lord is in control of the words that Paul is writing to these various churches. There is a historical context, and there is a personal relationship that the apostle has to these brethren. But even with that in place, God is, is uh, ordering and God is directing the apostle on all that he writes. And so we call that inspiration. And we look carefully at the word inspired, these the scriptures do not tell us that the apostles were inspired. It says that the scripture is inspired. And the idea there is that the words are breathed by God. God breathed, or the words are inspired. And those inspired words are spoken by apostles, the scripture says, that were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Spirit. And so when we look at these messages to the churches, messages from God, we see divine uh, revelation and divine advice, instruction, correction, whatever it might be. In the letters that we've looked at so far, we've noticed that there are churches that need to be corrected because they are drifting away from the truth. They are practicing things that were not a part of the gospel. They were adding to. And in doing so, serious language and, and harsh tones are found in the letters, letter to the churches of Galatia. That they needed to return to that truth. There is no other gospel. And uh, a perverted gospel happens quickly and easily. And so severe warnings there. And then as the apostle is writing the message of God to the church at Ephesus, there's an emphasis on remembering what it's all about. Remembering that it's about praising God, acknowledging his eternal will. It is about uh, understanding that all these things come to us in Christ and that we are not responsible for the good things we receive. We are simply responsible for reacting properly to what God has said. And when we don't react properly in faith and obedience, then we forfeit the blessings. But as we react as we ought, we've got to be careful to remember that God is to be praised and thanked for all that he does. And Ephesians places that kind of emphasis on what spiritual life really is all about, even in its practical part. Last night we looked at church that had a lot of problems. And it's amazing to understand how a church only about three years old can have as many problems and serious problems as the church at Corinth. But we, as we noted through the letter, there was a theme and a problem that kind of ran through all of that and, and was mentioned in, in most of the, of the correction, and that is that they were puffed up, self-centered. And from that standpoint, we go wherever we want to go. And obviously that is an, an area that we've got to be afraid of. And we need to be very careful to maintain a selfless and a humble, submissive spirit to both God and one another. And so we've looked at these churches and the problems that they had and the weaknesses and the admonitions, but what would the Lord say to a church that's got things together, a church that's doing well, a good church? What would God tell a faithful and a well-established church? And that's what we find in the letter to the church of Philippi. Philippians, by the time Paul writes the letter, is approximately 10 years old as a church. Uh, it was established on Paul's second journey. He visited him on his third journey. 
And after the third journey, he goes back to Jerusalem and is taken captive by the Jews and put under Roman jurisdiction, ends up in Rome, and he's in prison at Rome when he finally writes to the church at Philippi. He writes to the church when Epaphroditus comes to visit him from the church and bringing his uh, contribution or offering the support that the church at Philippi is sending to Paul. And that would be about ten years after the establishment or maybe about four years or so after his last visit. So it's a church that Paul knows well, and it's a church that uh, that has been uh, supporting him. Not This is not the first time. He talks about from the beginning, from the start, they had been helping him. So they've got a strong relationship together. But the, the words of, uh, the complimentary words of the Apostle Paul are coming from God. This is not just the way Paul feels about the church at Philippi. It's the way God feels about the church at Philippi. And so what would God say to that kind of a good church? And we do see some things in the letter that suggest to us that, uh, that there's things for good churches to think about and worry about. What, what is one of the threats that a well-established, successful, peaceful, uh, faithful church faces? And certainly at any time false doctrine can come in. At any time, uh, brethren can start misbehaving in, in bold sin or and these things would bring some turmoil. But uh, what we typically, and maybe you, you might have a different opinion, you can tell me after the lesson, but what we typically, typically worry about is that we just kind of get a little bit apathetic. Things are going well, we've got a nice building, we've got a good attendance. There's, we've lost a little bit of the urgency. What we were trying to build, we were trying to get from 15 to 25 people. And then 25 is good, but 35 would be better and this urgency to grow, and to get good teachers in, and we need more leadership, and I wish we had a good song leader. And finally, one is either converted, more likely moves to town, if he's a good song leader already, and, and so these things start to fall into place, and as the church grows, and now we have a property, and, and a good attendance, and things are, are, are going well, and now maybe after five years, six years, seven, eight, nine, ten years maybe, and as a well-established congregation, we keep thinking about the need to keep a good teaching program in place, and we, we've got to stay on evangelism, we've got to teach our young people, we need to keep it going, but the burden that we bear is, is motivation, and keeping ourselves moving forward with some kind of urgency and zeal, because that is no longer needed by virtue of a shaky or, or weak start. Now that we're moving, we've got momentum, but you know, if, if we're going on a flat surface, momentum slows, doesn't it? And it's hard to get the big ball rolling again. And so, if that may be what the problem is that uh, we might be facing, I think we find some solutions for that kind of a threat in the letters of the church at Philippi. Because what we're going to be seeing here, and I've got it here in the smaller lettering, and that is that this is a message about serving God in all joy, serving the Lord in all joy. And, of course, that joy is going to be part of our zeal and part of our um, motivation to keep us going. The fact that we are thrilled and, and excited, that we enjoy, and that we want to be a part of this work, and we want to accomplish something, and that joy then becomes not only the result of the success and the result of the work, it motivates more work. And I think that really becomes a theme as we look through the, these, uh, this letter at Philippi. First of all, we're just going to try to move quickly through the entire letter, 
We notice in chapter 1 that Paul starts off by telling them that they're doing a good job. And we read, in, and we'll do a lot of reading tonight. I hope you'll follow along with me. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. In this expression of gratitude to them, he's telling them what he thanks God for about them. And the two things that we notice is that, first of all, the fellowship. And that fellowship, we find out later, is what it sounds like here, their support financial support. They're sharing with him and his work, and the fellowship that he receives financially has been a great deal to him. Of course, I think Paul means, and, and we would understand, that that fellowship is really indicative of a richer sharing that they have as they've labored together, and that comes down in the latter part of the paragraph, where we find out that they are partakers with him in the grace and even in the sufferings of the gospel. And of course, as he speaks from prison, they can, uh, he can see that and see that in them. But did you notice that in verse 6 he expresses, it's not quite an admonition, but it's a hint at something, isn't it? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we're not done yet. And the Lord started here, but this is going to keep going. There's a hint already that we've got to keep this thing moving. You are good. You are right. You are a blessing. But you are not finished. And I think the wording is, is interesting when it talks about that God will complete it until. I thought you, when you completed something, you were finished. But here the completion is until the time is up. In other words, you're not finished until the time is up, the day of the Lord. And so the idea of this motivation, we're never done. We're never finished, and we see that right here in the beginning of the letter. But as Paul prays for them, and we'll notice in particular Verse 8, where he says, this is my prayer. Verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And so he names here these four things. He wants their love to abound. But notice the love here that is to abound, and, and surely they already have affection, and he indicates that. But in their, in their love, he wants it to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. You see, the, the mature love of the children of God that they have for the Lord, and certainly for one another, is, is molded and controlled and not only motivated, but governed and guided by knowledge of the truth. And so whatever we call it, the tough love or the generosity of giving uh, and sacrificing for one another, but it's always governed by this knowledge that is from God and discernment and judgment. You know, sweet talk is certainly a part of love, but that's not the only part. And so this love that they share needs to grow and mature in knowledge and discernment. But then the other things, approving the things that are excellent. I don't, that's not the sense of sitting in judgment. Okay, this is good and that's good. But the idea is, in your estimation, you are raising in your, in your estimation the things that are excellent or that are the spiritual, the needful, the valued, 
that those are the things that, that rise to the top in your estimation, that you're valuing the right kind of thing. That takes maturity. You begin to devalue things that are less important. Things of this world. Um, the Even the functions within the church that are part of the process that are not of themselves the objectives. And it's easy to get caught up in the machinery of our work and lose sight of that objective. Approve the things that are that are excellent. And be sincere. Our faith and our love and our service has got to be sincere and from the heart and genuine, filled with the fruits of righteousness. So that's what he wants for them. So what he's talking about here is, you're doing great, but just keep this going. You need to grow. Deepen your faith, your commitment, your understanding, your love, your service. Let's just see some more of the same. And that's a good, that's a good start. That's one thing that the Lord would say to a church that's faithful, righteous, and good. Keep it up. Why don't you do a little more? Why don't you deepen your, your service? But as Paul goes on, and he does this at least twice in the letter, he, he starts to talk about himself. And, um, Philippians is not very doctrinal. In fact, it's hard to find much doctrine in it as we would use the word doctrine for this, the teachings of the gospel and, and grace and righteousness and forgiveness. He didn't talk about those kinds of things. It's really a very personal letter that is to motivate this faithful church to, to keep doing what it's doing because obviously they know the truth. They're walking in the light, walking in the truth. And as Paul speaks in this personal way, he, he refers to himself several times. And we almost just think he's lapsed into a, into a discussion to let them know how he's doing. But we begin to realize he's telling us something here. He's, got, he's, he's wanting us to see something here. That's exactly what he's doing. And when Paul talks in this paragraph of chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. What's he talking about? What's happened to him? Well, he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome, and that's why Epaphroditus has come to see him from Philippi. They're worried about him, and he indicates that letter later in the letter. I know that you were worried about me, and that's why you sent Epaphroditus. And so, and so when he says, the things that have happened to me, it's obvious to them what he's talking about. He's in prison. This is, it's, 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 don't worry about it. It's great. This is, this is perfect. It's become evidence of the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Everybody knows why I'm in prison. So there's no shame or embarrassment there. They know why I'm here. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It could have had the opposite effect. Put Paul in prison, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But here it had the opposite effect. Paul is in prison and look at him. Look at his attitude and his heart. And it emboldened the Christians to speak without fear. And uh, this whole palace guard has, has heard the word. As we think about Paul describing what's happening here, it's almost unbelievable. You know, you, you really feel that way. Or you just, you know, you're just being optimistic and, and, uh, and sounding encouraging for your brethren. In verses 14 and following, there are some other things that are going on. In verse 15 it says, there are some people that have been emboldened to preach, that they're speaking out of envy and strife. Some from also from goodwill, don't forget that, but... But the former are preaching Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they had affliction to my chains. Then the latter are preaching out of love. Bottom line to Paul is, verse 18, what then? My translation might say, who cares? Only that in every place, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. In this rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. 
Because it, it doesn't bother me why they're preaching, as long as they're preaching. And of course, that is a statement that refers to the, the effect of the preaching of truth, regardless of the heart of the one doing the preaching. That the preaching will have its good effect, if in fact the truth is preached. Now, as far as those who are preaching false doctrine, it's a little bit like what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 13. You can give all your possessions to feed the poor and give your body to be, to be burned and it will profit you nothing if you don't have love. So it depends on what profit you're talking about. This preaching out of pretense is going to bring about their own personal condemnation. But others can be saved. And Paul's focusing on the good. Paul, you're just focusing on the good. Well, why not? Why not? It's exactly what he's doing. And so... He's going to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. We haven't got there yet, but we keep going in verse 19. For I know that this, and again, this situation, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21 that for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. You just skip verse 26, where he basically is saying, it can go either way at this point. And if it was up to me, I suppose I'd just soon die and be with the Lord. You know, he's worked long and hard. He's accomplished great things. I don't know if he expects to get out of prison or not. His letters, he says that he does. In fact, he's going to say that now. But it would be okay to die now. I'm ready to go. That, in fact, would be the better of the two. But he says, while I may be hard-pressed between the two, because I also hate to leave you, knowing of the good that I could do with you, well, I'm confident of this in verse 29, 25, and know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of the faith. You know, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to have to stay and work because the work needs to be done. Now, whether God has revealed that answer to him, remember I said that these words, though speaking out of a very real, personal context, are guided by the Lord. That's what he fully expects. And, of course, that's exactly what happens. And, but back to our point, as he talks to these brethren about this, he says things that, this is great. Yeah, I know I'm in prison, but, but who would have thought of all the good that could have been done? I wouldn't have planned it. No, I wouldn't have planned it this way. But this is great. You know, how many of us react that way? And, yeah, I've heard, I've heard about those, those guys that are preaching, and I know what they're up to, but who cares? The gospel is preached. How many of us react that way? When we know that there are people that are working at odds against us, but if they're accomplishing good, Rather, how many preachers like me look at other brethren and resent the fact that they're making more money or that they've got more meetings? We're talking about trivial trash like that, that, that irks me and raise up this sense of competitive spirit. Here's Paul. I mean, these brethren are literally seeking his hurt by their teaching. And he says, preach on, brother, as long as it's the truth. Who knows what good can come of it? Well, that's the kind of person that when he finally says that to live is Christ and to die is gain, we believe it. Probably believe that statement because 
of the previous statement. If being in prison is going to help the gospel, that's fine with me. If I've got enemies causing me trouble, as long as the gospel is preached, we're working on the same side, it seems fine with that. And when these brethren hear the Apostle Paul, they're worried about him, and then they hear this from him, what's that going to do to them and in them? It tells us, brethren, we've got to let it go. What is it that's got me discouraged and down and depressed? What is it that's my burden that knocked me off my game, put me in a place where I don't want to be, dealing with a mess that I didn't ask for? Let it go and get to work. The stuff doesn't matter. Who cares what everybody else is doing? That stuff doesn't matter. And I've got to think spiritually all the time, which means, for all of us here tonight, faithful in the Lord, we are better off tonight with the Lord. The only reason for us to stay here is that there are other people that need us. That's the way we need to live. And Paul has taught a powerful lesson as he's kind of just talked about his own situation a little bit. And there's an attitude that a good church needs to hear. However good they are, we all need this lesson, don't we? And so that's what God says to a good church. But then Paul moves on in chapter 2 and says, Now be real careful to look out for the interests of others. And he starts this in verse 1 and 2 by emphasizing that we need to fulfill the expectation of the gospel. The language here does that. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and then think about that statement, if there is consolation in Christ. We understand the impact of that wording, right? It goes on, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, if these things are a part of the gospel, and if they are working in the gospel, if you find these things in the gospel, then verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. If these things are a part of the gospel, and I would go back and see what those things are, Remember, verse 2 is calling for unity and oneness of heart and the spirit. Not simply of doctrine, though that absolutely is necessary. It goes beyond doctrinal unity to a personal unity in affection and care one for another. If there's any consolation in Christ, then that ought, that ought to be found among us. Consoling spirit. If there is any comfort of love and comfort in love, that ought to be found among us. Comfort one another. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, there ought to be fellowship among us. And if there's any affection and mercy from God, there ought to be affection and mercy among us. So Paul says, so fulfill my joy and do that. Be one in that way. And so we've got to start looking out for the interest of others and that's, the, that's the, the, the problem that gets in the way. So he deals with it in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than self. So that, that verse is addressing the thing that keeps us from that affection and that concern and those things that bring about that oneness of, of mind and heart and spirit. Notice what he says, nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. And again, the idea of proud, the pride that's discussed here is not the arrogant one who likes to toot his own horn and make sure everybody knows what he's done. This is a person who is self-centered and worried about his own interests or her own concerns and, and my needs and what I'm getting out of this and what people are doing for me. 
Nothing is to be done from that selfish ambition. The conceit that says, I'm the one that needs to be served here. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than self. And that better than self, the others are better. It's not talking about, I'm a song leader, he's a song leader. It's clear and obvious that I'm the better song leader. The comparing of abilities is not what he's talking about here. Obviously, there are varied abilities. And uh, the Lord addresses it in Romans 12 when he talks about that there are some who show mercy and some who give. And uh, there are some who prophesy. It's obviously that diversity of ability. Aren't we all supposed to show mercy? At least some. But some have so much more, some, such a greater capacity for mercy. I'm better at mercy than you are. We don't hear much bragging on that one, but that comparing of abilities is not the point. In the context, better than self is, I've got needs, I've got wants, and I've got preferences. But yours are much more significant than mine. So let, let me hear yours. And if everybody has that attitude, then we're so busy trying to please each other that we argue over who's going to pay the check. You know, we played that game sometime in the restaurant, maybe. And that's the way our Christianity is supposed to be, looking out for the interests of others. And, of course, he illustrates it with the familiar picture of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And we see that picture of Jesus Christ. Christ, the form and the equality with God. But he emptied himself, and he became not just a man, but a servant who submitted himself to the humiliating death on the cross. Uh, and that degradation is probably something we cannot quite comprehend in our more civilized and sanitary world. But as we imagine that lowliness of Christ, then there is, of course, the reminder that God exalted him and every knee is going to bow. And the counterpart is true of God's people as well. God's people who lower themselves, lower and lower and lower to serve sacrificing along the way, humiliating oneself beneath others to do so, yielding to others, that the glory is coming, the glory will come. And so the point here is, look out for the interests of others. And you know, the bigger and the better, the more well-established the church is, with all of the good work that it's doing, the easier it is for me as a member to adopt the serve rather than serve attitude. What does this church offer me and my family? The classes we want to investigate. What are the classes like? How's the preaching? Uh, where is it located? What about the services? And on and on. How many activities? Is there young people? Is there older people? Do I have people my age? People with my interests? Where do I fit in? And you don't do that with a new work in, in you know downtown Nashville or or whatever other larger city you might imagine. You do that in this neighborhood. Well, this neighborhood looks good to me. And there's nothing wrong with that. But do we see the danger here? As, as the church has so much to offer, then we begin to focus on that. When really the church is the place we serve. The place we serve. And so Paul, the Lord, would say that. To a, to a good church. Remember what our work is. And true disciples are going to look like the master who washes the disciples' feet. As we go a little bit further, we see that the Lord wants them to work 
and work out their own salvation. And this is the Apostle's writing in verse 12 and following. Therefore, beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's, that's the pivotal statement or the, the anchor statement for this paragraph. You need to get to that work. And uh, the, the word work suggests energy and effort in their obedience to God. When he says, work out your own salvation, whether or not anybody's looking, in verse 12, Paul says, work like you worked when I was with you. I'm not there, but you work anyway. To work whether or not anyone is looking. And work with fear and trembling. Understanding the obligation to work. The danger of failure to work or the danger of working not the Lord's work, but your own activity. We're, we, we surely understand the clear teaching in Scripture that work for work's sake is not the point. The Lord said, He who hears these words of mine and does them, he that doeth the will of the Father, that's who's going to be acceptable in Matthew chapter 7. So as we work, we work with fear and trembling. Not like the one-talent man who was so afraid of failure that he did nothing at all. The fear was for the wrong thing there. And so he says, work, and work whether or not anybody's watching, work with fear and trembling. And verse 14, do all things without complaining or disputing. No complaint, without murmuring here. And the idea of working without murmuring suggests that you've got a heart that wants to work. You're not being compelled by those who are pressuring or by a sense of obligation because what will people think? Or everybody else is doing it, so I guess i got to sign up too. Work, with, work out of a heart that wants to serve the Lord. And that's indicated by one who works without murmuring and complaining. And so as we look at this, we further see that while he says you have to work out your own salvation, and here, clearly his point is, I'm not with you anymore. I'm not there. But you've got to keep doing it. You, you've got to work without me. It's a good sermon for a preacher who's ready to leave town, isn't it? Work out your own salvation, brethren. I've been here for however long. Now you've got to keep... And when, that's the sentiment that's here. I'm not there, but you've got to keep going. You've got to keep working. But that doesn't mean you're alone. Because we see, first of all, in verse 13, that God, it's God that works in you both to will and to do. You know, the motivation and the what to do, all of that, it, it, that's all in God. God's there. He's the one telling you what to do and why to do it and how to do it. And what you're going to get out of it, here and later. The Lord's working in you, and He knows of all that you do. But the Lord's not the only one that's with you. Verses 16 through 18, Paul says that uh, um, you need to be holding forth the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. I know what you're doing. I'm not there, but I know what you're doing. I hear about it. And I'm being poured out as an offering, and I'm going to be leaving. But you are my joy, my crown. You are my reason to rejoice. But then there's Timothy in verse 19 and following. I'm sending him to you. He's coming. And don't forget your brother Epaphroditus that at your bidding has traveled all this way and nearly died with a dangerous disease along the way. And now he's here recuperating and doing a lot better, Paul said. You're not alone. And, uh, and so, bottom line is quit complaining and get to work. And that's what the Lord would say to a good church. We've all got something to complain about something we wish were different. Let's just get to work. We go a little bit further and keep moving this evening. 
And uh, chapter 3, Paul again turns to himself and talks about something that is uh, in his life and a part of his experience. He says, finally, my brethren, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. And that's odd wording, but if we think through it, we, we understand what Paul is saying. We catch the word rejoice again. You heard that word a few times already? Serving the Lord with all joy seems to be a theme in the letter. It, he'll, he'll put an exclamation point behind it before we finish. But okay, finally, brother, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm writing these things to you, and it's not tedious. This is not drudge work. I need to write these things because you need to hear it. This is for your welfare, your safety. And he, that's how he introduces this one warning that is about as close to doctrine as it gets in Philippians. And it doesn't really get doctrinal, but he's just warning them of a certain attitude among some that can have a dangerous effect among the people of God. We know when we talk about the letter to the churches of Galatia about the, the error of circumcision, and, uh, uh, an activity that wasn't a part of the gospel, other than that, there's not anything wrong with it. It just wasn't taught in the gospel, so leave it alone. And uh, if it's not in the gospel, you don't need to be doing it. And so circumcision falls in that category, and that's just about the way Paul argued. And these brethren here that he begins to warn about, starting in verse 2, seem to be of that attitude, that, and as we also noted earlier, because the, the gospel has been preached in its, full, uh, in its uh, fullness, and that practice is not included, doesn't mean nobody's going to include it. And then when it's dealt with, it says it doesn't belong just out of here, and that's been made clear, Acts chapter 15, that doesn't mean people aren't going to bring it back anyway. And that's why I had the Galatian letter. And now, maybe eight, six, eight, ten, however, however you date the letter, years later, there's still this subversive element that is thinking carnal. And he says, so beware of these worldly attitudes and circumcision, and those who would suggest the importance of that practice are thinking from a carnal point of view. And so it says, beware of that. But what's interesting for our study is to realize that Paul says, if we want to compare resumes, I have a pretty good one. And he starts talking about his background as a Jew. Well-placed, well-educated, and well-positioned for great success on a lot of levels. But verse 7 he says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. And everybody who knows Paul knows his story. I mean, they had to, right? Preachers like to tell their story. And so they've heard his story. And they know what he's talking about. And they know what Paul gave up. And they know what he got out of it. He got a lot spiritually. He got everything. He got life. He got eternal life. what he's talking about here. He got everything. But what did he have materially? No respect. You know, Rod, uh, Rod, Rodney Dangerfield thinks he gets no respect. The Apostle Paul was treated much worse. There's no respect. No material gain. He's in prison. For all these years of late, how, how, we've lost count of how many times he's been in prison at this point. I count all that loss for what I gain in Christ. And so, as we look at the writing here, we need to rejoice in the Lord and not in this other stuff. And as we look a little bit further, 
We need to understand that nothing compares with eternal life. What are you, what are you going to put on the other side of the scale? Eternal life? What else is there? So he says in verse 8, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. As we look at the way he words the comparison, on this side you've got, here's eternal life. He says, whatever you can put on this side, toss it. It's rubbish. It is of no value to me. I will give it all up. He says, if by any means I may attain. The wording is suggesting that if throwing away all of this gives me the chance, at eternal life, you take the risk and go for it. That's his point. Now, he doesn't believe that it's a risk. He doesn't believe that there is an uncertainty. But that's a part of the language here. You throw everything away for the possibility, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He goes on to say that even at this point, we keep pushing. Remember, he's still talking about himself. But we've already forgotten that it's all about Paul. We understand that this is what the gospel is about. This is you and me. Didn't that happen? It happens to me when I read this. But yeah, that, that's the way it needs to be. But as Paul still talks about himself, and I want to bring us back to Paul, because he illustrates for us this point so well. Verse 12, Paul says, at this point, three missionary journeys with all that happened, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold on, of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. I do not count myself to have apprehended. One thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, reaching forward to those which are ahead. I press on to the goal, Paul said. You keep pushing. You keep pushing. You're not done. We're never done. And so there's the attitude, the teaching of God for a good church. He ends this section by saying, We've got good examples. He calls them to be like him. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Paul says, I'm not the only one. It's not just me. And note those who, who so walk as you have us for a pattern. The word note there is the word mark. In some translations, it's the same one that is used for the exercise of discipline, noting or marking. It's simply the idea that you identify this person. Here he is. Here she is. Here's what he and she is about. Note that. Be aware. And here he's using Note. My example. Take note of that. Mark it. You've got a lot of examples like this. Because there's plenty of other examples. And you know, brethren, if you're looking for it, verse 18, you're going to find some examples of people that will pull you the other way. There, there are children of God. You grab, you know, you grab their hand and hang on, follow them, and they'll walk that route. And if you're looking to go another route in the pursuit of Christianity, you can find those who are seeking a path of least resistance and minimum daily requirements. You find that example too. 
and he talks about them here. And I think we, without reading it tonight, can guess what he says about that. And so still thinking spiritually and still living eternally. Here now in this world, the good church, we've got a reason to act with urgency, to be motivated. And this is the good church getting this kind of admonition. One more section in chapter 4, where Paul says in this section, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In verses 2 and 3, we've got two sisters in the church who evidently have got some kind of a disagreement, and he urges the church to help them to settle that. So I suggest that Paul says to a, to a good church, and the stuff comes up, I mean, it's inevitable, right? In a good church, there's something, now and then at least, more often than now and then, there's something. And Paul says, work it out. Work it out. And it's interesting to note that Paul does not try to work it out for them. He just tells them to work it out. And so that's what good churches will do. And they need to deal with it. They do need to work it out, not let it go. Work it out. And he goes on in verses 4 through 7 to begin to emphasize now this concept of rejoicing in the Lord, serving the Lord with all joy. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. That guarding of our hearts and minds. There's so much of the Scripture that tells us that the Lord does not put a force field of protection around us. Read the book of Revelation. When the souls under the altar are saying, Lord, how long, how long till you avenge our blood? And the Lord says, you've got to wait a little while till some more Christians die. And then I'll take care of it. The Lord does not protect His own. Or and over again in the book of Revelation, the picture is there's more suffering coming and more saints will die and the leaders and the, and the messengers of God will be, will be persecuted, but Christ will win. And the peace of God that protects our hearts and minds, that's the force field. It's around our hearts and our minds. But regardless of the circumstances in life, we can handle it and we can deal with it as it comes because we are anxious for nothing. We pray about everything. We are rejoicing in the Lord. Previous chart, we're thinking spiritually and living eternally. And so we've got this all behind us. And then in verses 8 and 9, keep your heart right. If we fail here, the previous section falls apart. But meditate, think on things that are noble and just and pure and lovely, those things that are of good report, of virtue, praiseworthy. Meditate on these things. The things that you've heard and seen, and, and uh, he, what is it? Heard and seen in me, these things do. Get your heart right and get busy in the work. And you'll, you'll, be, you'll be what you need to be. You'll, you'll be all right. And finally, and learn contentment. Here he comes back to himself again. And this is where he said, I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base. I know how to abound. Talking about himself. And clearly again, they can picture Paul in, in good and bad situations. But they also know that he's not just talking about himself. He's talking to them. And we know the Lord is talking to us. 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People put that phrase in a lot of key 
spaces to remind themselves that they can accomplish whatever they want to accomplish in life. NBA, I'm going to be there one day. I don't think that's what the Lord's talking about. Start my own business. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not what the Lord is talking about. What he's talking about is, you can know how to be content in an abased, degraded position in life, or be faithful to the Lord in a glorious, wonderful state of prosperity. You can handle anything in Christ. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about our worldly ambitions, and I don't mean my worldly immoral, the here and now ambitions, the goals that we have that pertain to this life. I can do all things. He's talking about all the things that matter. We can do those things if we will put our heart and mind to it. As we think about what the Lord would say to a good church, and we read the letter of the church at Philippi, church with bishops and deacons, prosper enough, prosperous enough to send support to foreign evangelists, to send messengers to check on him. That, I mean, these brethren, there's a significant number with ability and talent, and this is a good church. That's who we want to be as a congregation. We want to be the church at Philippi. Well, what would the Lord say to us when we're doing well? And this, this letter tells us. tells us that we need to serve the Lord with all joy. Get to work. Get focused and pursue spiritual growth. With the joy and a selfless service, no matter what, keep on giving for others. Always, it's the other person, the other one. Who needs me? What do they need? Don't complain. Get busy. Think spiritually and act eternally. It's not about the here and now. And with the right attitude, we can accomplish everything the Lord wants us to be and do. And so it's a motivational letter. And it's positive. It is encouraging. That's what good churches need to hear. Don't forget Corinthians and all the problems. And don't forget Galatians, the warning about holding to the doctrine. But there's a time to be encouraged and motivated. And fear and be wary of indifference and self-satisfaction that sneaks up on us when we're in a good situation. This letter doesn't let it happen. The Lord's going to talk to another church tomorrow night that's not in such a good good situation. They're in very adverse circumstances. They're they're brand new and they're very small and they probably don't think they're going to make it. And... uh, And I hope that you can be back tomorrow night as as Paul writes God's letter to the church at Thessalonica.